You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Matthew 14, 12. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came and said to him, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Oh, come on, you can do better than that, guys. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be um, sharing with you this morning. My name's Gemma. If we haven't met, I have the immense privilege and joy of being one of the pastors around here. Um, This morning, we're continuing with the teaching series we started last week. It's called Resilient Hearts. And we're trying to address the question of what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to live and love in a countercultural way in a transient city like New York. Patrick shared last week that New York is a port city, and the the, the historical role of the city was the temporary use of it for wealth and commerce. Now, of course, there are those among us who are born and bred, raised in the five boroughs, but the vast majority of us in this church community, and in fact, the entire city, apparently 50% of the entire city, are transplants. We were born elsewhere. We once lived elsewhere. We are here for this time, and perhaps at some point in the future, we will go on to live elsewhere. Recently, Tyler shared the news that he and his family will be leaving New York. And after years of of living here, loving here, serving here, being fully committed to life here for the long haul, they have decided to move on. And moments like this can cause a shaking for the rest of us who are left behind, a questioning of why am I still here? Should I be here? Do I still want to be here? And it can also give rise to resentment, bitterness, judgment. But I thought you were here for the long haul. I thought you told me to put down roots here. And now are you just taking the easy road? Because, of course, all New Yorkers think that the hardest place to live is New York, right? 
And the truth is, there are a lot of hard things about living in New York. And for me personally, in the relatively short time that I have called this city my home, I would say that the hardest thing for me has been the transient nature of the city. When we first moved, someone told us, prepare to lose all your friends every few years. And they were not wrong. During this past year alone, countless people have chosen to leave the city during COVID. And I've definitely heard some loud murmurings, even within this church community of, well, they weren't prepared to stick it out. I stayed. I was here for the long haul of COVID. And now I'm going to wear that like a badge of honor. You may have passed road signs during this past year during the pandemic saying, New York tough. Has anyone else seen those? And I think in many ways, living in New York, and specifically the challenges of living in New York, can become somewhat of an idol for us. Being here makes us strong and tough. Leaving here makes us privileged or weak. But is this the view that Jesus wants us to have about the city, about those who choose to live here and those who choose to leave? And we want to spend a few weeks looking into scripture and inviting God to speak to us right into this specific moment that we find ourselves in as a church. Last week, Patrick kicked off the series by talking about the need for us to have settled hearts, hearts that are founded on Jesus and settled on the reality that we are intentionally moving against a current Today, I want to talk about what it means for us to have sourced hearts. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the dictionary definition of source is a place, person, or thing from which something comes or can be obtained. A source often refers to a beginning or a point of origin or supply, where something or someone came from. In scripture, Jesus is described as being the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the source and sustainer of life itself. There are countless references in scripture to God as our provider, God as our sustainer, our portion, our supply, our strength, the one who satisfies us. We often associate the word source with water, like the beginning point of a river is called its source. In John 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he refers to himself as living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus is our source, the one in whom we live and breathe and have our being. He is the source of eternal life. So when we talk about having sourced hearts, we're talking about lives that are rooted and anchored in Christ as our source. He is the vine, we are the branches, our very life flows from him and is dependent upon him. Having a resilient heart in New York City requires a deep and strong connection to our source. And as we look at our teaching text today, I want to draw out three things in particular that we see in the life of Jesus that should become a model for us in having a sourced heart. And they are withdrawing, generosity, and legacy. But before we jump in, I want to give some context for the passage itself. 
So the John that is being referred to here is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, son of Elizabeth and Zechariah that we read about in the birth narratives in Luke 1. This is John who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, John had been arrested by King Herod because he spoke out publicly condemning Herod's moral choices. John spoke out in opposition to Herod's marriage to Herodias, who was his brother Philip's wife. And he said, John said, that it was unlawful for him to have her as his wife. Now, Herod wanted to silence John, but he didn't exactly want to kill him because he knew that the people revered him and thought that John was a prophet. So instead, he had him bound and imprisoned. Now, on the occasion of Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, Salome, danced for Herod's guests. And this pleased Herod so much that he boastfully and recklessly made an oath before all of his distinguished dinner guests, promising to give Salome whatever she asked for. Now, being the young girl that she was, she consulted with her mother, Herodias. And after consulting with her, what she asked for was the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So Herod didn't want to be shamed or humiliated by not following through on the promise he'd made, and so he granted her request. John was beheaded in prison, and his head was brought to the girl who promptly delivered it to her mother. He was killed on a whim for the entertainment of guests at a dinner party. Now, John's disciples then bury the body of John and immediately go to tell Jesus what had happened, which points to the closeness of the relationship that existed between John the Baptist and Jesus. John's disciples knew that because of their closeness, Jesus must immediately be told the news of John's murder. And this is the news that Jesus has received at the beginning of our teaching text. So how does Jesus respond to this news? We're told that he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus was grieving the loss of a loved one. We talked recently at the Good Friday service about Jesus as our man of sorrows, the suffering servant, fully acquainted with every facet of human pain and grief, including the temporary or permanent loss of a friend. Jesus knew that the work of processing and grieving would require solitude. There is a deep, inner, private work of grieving to be done when confronted with the loss of someone we love. Jesus was no different. It's very normal to want to withdraw during a period of grief. But notice that the text doesn't say that Jesus withdrew from anyone or anything. That is not the emphasis. What the text emphasizes is that he withdrew too. And I think this is a really important distinction because often when we find ourselves in a period of grief and loss, we are tempted to withdraw from everything and everyone, from people who want to care for us, even from God himself. After my sister-in-law died, I was so disoriented that I withdrew from everyone, my friends, my community, even my husband, and most certainly I withdrew from God. And I journeyed with that grief by separating myself from and rejecting everything. It was a very definite and prolonged withdrawing from. And that road was long and painful, and recovery was labored and lonely and difficult. And years later, after I had journeyed through this wall that was my crisis of faith and become reoriented around the love and goodness of God, I found myself in yet another very painful season of loss. 
And one day I was in prayer and I distinctly remember God speaking to me. And he said, Gemma, last time you withdrew from me. This time, would you withdraw to me? Jesus withdrew to his father. He withdrew to the secret solitary place where he could be alone with God. He needed to be alone with the mothering and fathering presence of God to unburden himself of everything he was feeling, to process all that he was thinking, to find himself in the shadow of the Almighty. And I don't know what personal losses or griefs you've come in here with today, but the invitation to you is the same. Will you withdraw to me? Come away with me and burden yourself in the presence of your Father. Find yourself rooted and anchored in his love, even in times of disorientation, so that you can rest and be comforted and replenished for the ongoing journey. Return to your source. Jesus went off by boat in need of silence and solitude. He intentionally left the crowds, left his closest friends, so that he could be awake to and present to himself and God. He knew that this was what his soul most needed. I was reflecting on that this week, and I remembered a moment a couple of years ago when my family and I went to Montana for vacation, and I just felt like I wanted to share it with you. Um, we, we were there, and while we were there, I was really confronted by the, the stark contrast between the, the teeming abundance of the landscape around me and the parched barrenness of my own interior landscape at that time. Um, as a mother of young children and a full life of, of marriage and, and family and ministry, I had utterly neglected to care for my own physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. I was dangerously tired. I was desperately overstimulated by the noise of life in New York, by the riddled with sort of the guilt of unmet expectations and, and just really reeling from unprocessed anger and grief. And I was utterly spent and just desperately trying to keep going. And one night, when the pressure of containing all of that became too much, I left the little cabin where we were staying without saying much of where I was going, and I climbed into a canoe and I started paddling out on flat head lake. I hadn't formed a plan. I hadn't intended to go far out, evident in the fact that I had foolishly not even stopped to put on a life vest. But as soon as I started paddling, I felt this overwhelming urge to keep going, to get beyond the houses, beyond the other boats, beyond civilization, and just to be entirely and completely alone. And I just kept going until all I could see was mountains and lake and sky. And then I just sat there just cradled by the water. I sat there in the embrace of God long enough to, as Wendell Berry would say, come into the peace of wild things. The only cure for my aching loneliness was solitude. I needed to be with my father and only my father, but I had left it way too long. Jesus was fully human. He was fully acquainted with all the pressures and demands of being human, and yet he often sought that lonely place where he could be alone with his father in prayer. And the truth is that I hadn't withdrawn often enough to that lonely place, and as a result, my desperation actually put me in physical danger. Silence and solitude should not be sought out of desperation, but out of discipline. 
There should be a rhythm to our days, our weeks, our years that creates space for us to withdraw from our families, withdraw from the noise, from our work, the daily pressures of our lives to be alone with our Father, to feel his embrace, to experience his kindness. This is what restores and reorients our souls. In the silence and solitude, we simply sit under the loving gaze of God because it's in that place that we are reminded that stripped of all we do, we are loved simply for who we are. And God longs for us to live from that place of interior freedom. And while it's important for us living in New York to cultivate a rhythm of solitude within the confines of the city, I also do think it's important to point out that in order to sustain our life in New York for the long haul, there also has to be a healthy amount of literally withdrawing from it getting into nature, being near water or mountains, being revived by proximity to wildlife, allowing that to give us a fresh outlook and perspective. When we get away from the traffic and the sirens and experience actual silence, and I mean the silence you don't need noise-canceling headphones for, that's when the volume gets turned up on what's actually going on in our souls. When we turn down the external noise, our ears become more attuned to our internal noise, to what our bodies are desperately trying to tell us, to what our souls are crying out for. Return to your source. We've talked about withdrawing, and I want us to hone in on the generosity of Jesus that we see in this text, only through the discipline of solitude. So a crowd has followed the magnetic presence of Jesus far from their own towns and villages in order to simply be around him. And they accost him as his boat docks on the shore. Now, we know from our teaching text that Jesus was on the boat on, on his way to a solitary place, but he gets interrupted by the crowd on his way. So Jesus, in actual fact, was only alone for a short time, but this was sufficient to rejuvenate him enough so that he was able to generously welcome the crowd that had pursued him and tracked him down. We're told that he had compassion on them and healed them. Now, if silence and solitude and withdrawing to God's presence was something Jesus just saved up for times when he was dangerously tired or desperately in need, he would never have been refreshed enough by this short journey in order to respond to this interruption in the generous way that he did. The truth is that when we're starved of something, we tend to cling to it with all we've got when we actually do get it. We find it hard to share it. Jesus, in contrast, was not remotely starved of his Father's presence. He was filled to the brim because solitude was a regular practice. He was accustomed to being alone with God, drinking deep from his source. So he didn't need any warming up. There was no on-ramp to intimate conversation with the Father. And so even after a short time spent alone with God crossing the river, it was enough so that Jesus could have what he needed and could be present to people in the way that they needed. And the kind of generosity I'm talking about here is not at all related to money, which we often associate with generosity. It's a generosity of spirit, a willingness to share oneself, a willingness to be interrupted Jesus models generosity, both in his ability to release and let go of plans in order to make room for the Holy Spirit's leading, and also in the way that he graciously responds to and embraces those in need, freely as he had received, freely he gives. The word for compassion here is splanknesomai, which I'm probably saying terribly. It comes from the root word splanknon, which literally means bowels, 
entrails, intestines. The bowels were used to speak of the more violent passions like anger and love. And so here in this word for compassion, the connotation is a deep guttural response of love and kindness. This was not surface level charity. I said months ago that I believe God is inviting us into a new season of mercy. And mercy is really another word for compassion and so tied to generosity because when we express mercy, we are generously giving compassion. And as I've been preparing to share today, I felt a stirring in my heart again that God is inviting us in a fresh way to be a people of generosity that goes way beyond finances. How can we extend this kind of compassion and generosity to the newest round of transplants that enter this city, enter this community? How can we make room for them and receive them in all of their beauty and chaos and brokenness? How can we create a safe space for their ongoing journey towards healing and wholeness? And how can we extend this kind of generous compassion when someone tells us they're leaving? When someone interrupts our best laid plans for what life is going to look like here? Often, if we're really honest, we can make it hard for people to leave here. We can make it hard for people to arrive here. And we can make it hard for people who left to come back here. When we lived in LA, we were part of a beautiful, messy church community in Hollywood. And our pastor, David Roos, had all these catchphrases that he used to say. And they just became part of the kind of DNA of the culture of our community. And one of his catchphrases was, we give our best away. And when I first got there, I didn't fully understand really what he meant when he kept saying this. But very quickly, I came to see that LA is, has a very similar transient nature to New York. People came, people left, people put down roots and loved well for a few years and then moved on. And so every time we got to one of those Sundays when it was someone's last Sunday, he would say it again, we give our best away. And we would bless and send them off on their next adventure with God. It was this beautiful posture of generosity. Freely we received you. Freely we give you away. And that same posture of generosity created this open arms welcome to those who were new. Um, one of my dearest friends who lives in the city now and has lived in New York for the same length of time as we have, but she previously lived in LA and was the first person to welcome me on that first Sunday when I arrived. And I knew immediately that this was going to be my home. I was welcomed. I was empowered. I was put to work. I was made part of the family right from the very beginning. And when the end of the two years rolled around and we shared that we were feeling this nudge towards New York, our community entered into praying and discerning with us. And when we made the decision to go, we became the next in a long line of those who were generously blessed and sent. What would it look like for us to embrace that here? I think there's an invitation for us, an invitation to a Christ-like kind of generosity. And it means letting go of our pride, letting go of our judgment, giving up any idolatry we hold to the hardships of this city. And it also means that we desperately need to have resilient hearts. Because the truth is, it hurts to love people again and again and again, and to lose people again and again and again. I can't sugarcoat that. It hurts. 
our story of living here um, is that every 18 months we've lost our closest friends. I hope that is not your story. Um, just the other day, John and I were driving and he was like, yeah, that's what New York will do. It will reach into your chest, rip out your heart and scatter it across the globe, which, you know, may sound a little bit dramatic and bleak, but what can I say? We're just in another wave of it right now, friends. So it all feels a little bit raw. But experiencing the grief of a loss of a friend means that you have tasted some of the best that this life has to offer. And I, for one, can't imagine living any other way. I mean, do we just stop loving well because we fear the pain that will come from separation? Do we put up walls so that no one can get in, no one can hurt us again? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So we keep laying them down, and we keep laying them down again and again, knowing that faith, hope, and love are the only things that endure for eternity. So in the midst of grieving another friend lost, Jesus is confronted by new people, seeking a piece of him, and he embraces them, teaches them, and heals them, until the crowd finds themselves having lost track of time, and they remember that they are far from home as the sun begins to set. And this makes way for the miracle. And this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle that features in all four gospel accounts. So it's a particularly important one for us to pay attention to. And I want to dig into the miracle itself for a few minutes so that we can unpack this last word, legacy. Jesus was so rooted and anchored in God as his source and sustenance that he remained calm and collected in a moment of uncertainty. He wasn't alarmed by the fact that the people who had followed him were now stranded in a remote place with nothing to eat. His trust was fully intact. When we spend time with God in his presence and in his word, when we are reminded again of who he is and who we are, our trust gets replenished. We get filled up again with an assurance of God's love and faithfulness. And that is what enables us to face the next challenge and somehow be supernaturally relaxed. So the disciples are frazzled, lay out the problem to Jesus. And Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus is not checked out here. He's not like, hey, guys, I'm totally spent from all that healing, and they kind of interrupted me on my way to solitude, so, you know, you figure it out. No, this was an expression of trust in God. He is fully convinced that God is able to accomplish whatever concerns them. He also wants the disciples to come to that awareness. The news of the death of John the Baptist has most likely caused Jesus to be particularly mindful of his own approaching passion and the death that he knows awaits him in the not-too-distant future. And so for me, these words to the disciples are a reflection of the fact that Jesus is already considering his legacy. He wants his disciples to be ready when that day comes, to be fully equipped to continue the work he has begun after he is gone. The time would come when Jesus would give them the great commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So when Jesus says, you feed them, this is also a prophetic statement of their calling as apostles. Feed my sheep, share the bread of life, spread the word of God amongst the nations. Jesus is already trying to empower and release them into that call. 
Not too long after this event, Jesus begins to be explicit with his disciples about the fact that he's going to die. He's already trying to prepare them for the fact that he will not always be with them. And when that time comes, Jesus wants them to be able to respond to a crisis with faith, trust and expectation in the miraculous power and provision of God. And so for me, the feeding of the 5,000 is not only a literal event, but also a very prophetic act. I imagine that as Jesus blessed and broke the bread, looking around at the thousands who had gathered, he was already reflecting on the truth of himself as the bread of life. He invites the people to sit. The word for sit here is actually more closely translated as recline, the way one might at a feast or a banquet. What a beautiful prophetic picture this is of the eternal banquet, when from every tribe and every nation, every race, every income bracket, the people of God will recline together at the feast of the Lamb. And as he broke the bread in front of them, I imagine he was already reflecting on the symbolism of the broken bread as his broken body. When you read this passage alongside the verses that describe what we celebrate as communion based on the Last Supper with his disciples, you'll see exactly the same pattern. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it away. We read that the people ate and were satisfied. And the word satisfied here has the nuance of being completely satisfied. So no doubt as Jesus watched the people eat, he was already pondering the ways in which his broken body on the cross would make way for the people to be completely satisfied by his love. And the imagery of the leftover baskets of food points to the unlimited grace and mercy of God in his redemption of the world through Jesus. Our teaching text today has legacy written all over it. And once again, there is an invitation for us. When we live with hearts that are sourced and rooted in Jesus, we will live with a heavenly mindset. We will live by faith and not by sight. We will give ourselves to the endeavors that have eternal significance. In a city that, like New York that is always shifting and changing, legacy is so important. What are you building here? What are you giving away? What are you sowing of eternal consequence? For our first six and a half years or so living here, we lived on Oak Street in Greenpoint. And outside our bedroom window, there was this huge, beautiful, mature tree. And I remember distinctly about two years into living here, I came down my stoop to see a woman in her 50s hugging said tree. And you know, you're like, okay, it's Brooklyn, so anything goes. Um, but actually, when I looked at her, I could see a lot of emotion in her face. So I, I said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is everything okay? And she introduced herself and she told me that for many years she had lived in our building and that an infestation of insects had come and devoured all the trees on the street. They all had to be uprooted. And so she had planted a little tree outside her home. And shortly after that, she had to move away. And now she was returning to Brooklyn for the first time since. And so she came to visit her tree. And that was the moment when I found her overwhelmed with emotion hugging the tree. And God spoke to me really profoundly through that encounter. I felt like he said, Gemma, anyone is willing to plant where they know they're going to harvest. Anyone is willing to sow where they know they're going to reap. 
but will you plant where you might not harvest? Will you sow and labor and toil where you might not reap simply for the good of those who will be here? And I said, okay, Lord, I'll do that. I'll faithfully steward the work you give me here for as long as I am here. And when it's time to go, I will go with words of blessing and maybe one day I'll come back and hug a tree, <laughs> overwhelmed with gratitude for the faithfulness of God to see what has grown out of the tiny sapling that I nurtured once upon a time when I was here. You see, our story is that we left Ireland almost 10 years ago for a two-year stint in California. And at some point during that two-year period, we started to feel this nudge towards New York, which we figured was an extra year of fun on our way home. Um, <laughs> and we found the community who met in this space. Um, it was called Williamsburg Church at the time and felt like God was asking us to make it our home. And virtually none of the people who were part of that community then are part of it now. And yet here we are, eight years later, the one who always said we wouldn't be staying long. And we're continuing to live and serve here and raise our two American girls here simply because we don't feel like God has yet lifted the call for us to be here. I've often been struck by a little verse in Acts 17. It says this, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And I truly believe that God has me here and God has you here for such a time as this. What would it look like for us to live our everyday lives with an awareness of the legacy that we are leaving rather than willing ourselves to say Brooklyn till we die if that's not what you're called to? What if we just said, Lord, you have determined the times and places and I'm here for as long as I'm here and I will steward what you give me. In John 21 when Jesus has reinstated Peter, we read as that Jesus and Peter are walking along and Jesus is giving Peter his call. Peter turns around and sees another disciple, John, walking behind them. And Peter says, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. It's so easy for us to be swayed by what other people are doing or not doing because of their choice to stay or to not stay in New York. But ultimately, we want to be a people who stay when that is God's invitation to us and to leave if and when that is God's invitation to us. If he or she does this or that, what is that to you? What is that to me? I must follow Jesus. I must be obedient to the voice of God in my life. I can only be responsible for myself and the legacy I leave. I must follow Jesus. And so must you. The scripture makes it clear to us that if we are follow Jesus and live like him so that we can become more like him, we will be people who have a regular rhythm of withdrawing to a solitary place with God, finding our source in him. And as a result of that, we will be a people of extravagant generosity, rich in compassion, with a willingness to release our plans, release what has been, in order to welcome and embrace the new and unexpected. We will be people who care about legacy, who fix our eyes on eternity and attune our hearts and ears to the voice of Jesus saying, you must follow me. 
as we close, it's important for us to notice that our teaching text is bookended by solitude. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. In dismissing his disciples first, he's giving them a clear mandate that rest and solitude and time with the Father is going to be vital for them in their ministry of the gospel. Time alone with God is what Jesus always comes back to. It's where he recovers. It's where he prepares for whatever is next. His life is punctuated by this constant and continual rhythm. This is what it looks like to have a sourced heart continually returning to the embrace of the Father. So where did Jesus go after difficult news? He withdrew to the Father. Where did he go after performing the miraculous? He withdrew to the Father. It is of equal importance to withdraw to God in times of victory as it is in times of need. Jesus performed a miraculous sign before thousands of people, and he withdrew to the Father because the Father was his source. Equally for us, we withdraw to God in times of grief and trouble. We also withdraw to him when we've experienced triumph to remind ourselves that God is our source, that in him and through him we have life, and without him we can do nothing. Where do you go when life is tough? Where do you go when life is great? We can say pretty easily that Jesus is our source, but what we reach for in times of confusion, anxiety, sadness, elation, is the true revealer of our source. Where do you withdraw from to? From where are you drawing strength and comfort and sustenance? The other night I was lying in bed. Uh, my daughter had been up and then I couldn't get back to sleep. And I was mulling over something in particular in my mind. And this question came into my mind. And it was very simply, what are you reaching for? And I felt like that was something that God wanted to ask me and also wanted to, for me to share with you. What are you reaching for? In whatever moment of disorientation you find yourself in, if my source is Jesus, why am I continually reaching for my phone to tell me who I am and what I need? If my source is Jesus, why am I constantly striving to win the approval of others? If my source is Jesus, why am I turning to food or alcohol or pornography or binge-watching Netflix or buying yet another pair of shoes to comfort myself on a bad day and reward myself on a good day? What are you reaching for? Why don't we stand together? I'm going to invite Sam and Emily to come back on up. I think one of the best passages of scripture that illustrates our need for having sourced hearts is in John 15. And I, I just want to speak these words over myself and over us as we close and move into a time of worship and ministry. So I just invite you, close your eyes, just put yourself into a posture of openness to God. And just receive these words over you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. 
neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, you're here. We just invite you to come. I pray that every person listening would feel a tangible sense of your presence drawing close. Jesus, thank you that just as you greeted that crowd with compassion, so you embrace each of us today with that same kindness. Lord, would you feed us today and heal us today? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh. Fall afresh in this place, Lord. Fall afresh on every person who is here. Back when we were all meeting together in this place, we, we often had rugs at the front and people would come and kneel. And it might just be me, but I feel like it's a kneeling kind of day today. And if you feel like you want to occupy that posture of confession and surrender, kneeling is a, is a pretty good one to take up. Jesus, would you forgive us for all the things we reach for outside of you? Jesus, today in the midst of whatever disorientation we feel, we want to become securely oriented around you. We want to have sourced hearts, drawing deep from your abundant love and grace. Jesus, help us to withdraw to you. Give us a spirit of generosity that is countercultural. Make us a people of legacy. We don't need to rush this time, so let's just linger. Let's just use this time to worship and just invite the Holy Spirit to minister to you, to speak to you. And don't worry about what anyone else is doing around you. You must follow Jesus. Use this time to do business with him. So let's just worship. Spirit of the living God, continue to minister to us as we seek you. Amen.